0: chapter, John chapter 12 that we read earlier. While you do that I'm going to turn in my Bible to the book that comes immediately before the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, this morning I decided during the first service that I would consult my resident uh, think tank. Uh, Basically during the morning services at the nine o'clock service I go downstairs and, uh, and I speak to the Sunday school that meets in the catacombs immediately beneath your feet. Hopefully the, the roof of this floor will stay intact and you won't go down there prematurely. But I go down and, and I talk to them and, and uh, they give me a lot of feedback. So I was asking them this morning, I gave them a number of options. I gave them the option of how to pronounce the prophet that comes before Jeremiah's name. And uh, I, I I asked them whether they wanted the one they were most familiar with or whether they wanted another pronunciation, which was the right one. And I I gave them the option. I didn't tell them that. I left it wide open, and I really honestly thought they'd choose the one that they were most familiar with. In fact, what they chose was the one they were least familiar with. And I said, are you really sure? And the little boys from variety of quarters piped up their response. They said, the way you say it is cooler than the way we say it. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm always a bit of a sucker when it comes to being cool, so I guess cool it will be. But I just want you to notice something. How do you pronounce the word Jeremiah? Mm-hmm. Yes, indeedy. And then when I read, when I read the first verse of this particular prophet, I read this, the vision of blank, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. How should we pronounce his name? Isaiah or Isaiah? You say Isaiah. Anyway, I think for this morning we're going to do Isaiah just to please the cool crowd that want me to do it. <laughs> and we're launching really this morning, this is a kind of pre-launch. This is really just an advertisement. This is just uh, the kind of, next week we're really, we're really gonna start next week. But since you're here, and since most of our people who are normally here aren't here, uh, I'm gonna give you a kind of, this is a foretaste of coming attractions, <laughs> okay. This morning. So we're going to look at this great book of Isaiah or Isaiah and it stands as a kind of monumental work in the midst of all of the prophets of Israel. This week I came across a quotation by the first biographer of Johann Sebastian Bach and he said this about Bach's music. Bach's music is not merely agreeable like other composers but transports us to regions of the ideal. It does not arrest our attention momentarily but grips us the stronger the oftener we listen to it. So that after a thousand hearings its treasures are still unexhausted and yield fresh beauties to excite our wonder. Now he wrote that about Bach's music which stands like Mount Everest, I think, above all the rest of what we call classical music. He is the epitome of classical music. And his, uh, his foil when it comes to the prophets of Israel must be Isaiah the prophet. He stands like Mount Everest among all the other prophets, which is why I think in our, the way our canon is shaped and that we have in our Bibles this morning, Isaiah stands before the, the other great Uh, Prophets and the Lesser Prophets as first in the Book of the Prophets. First in number, first in rank. He is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament and the most loved by the Lord Jesus. But it is a monumental book, 66 chapters. In an era of quick fixes and popular literature that offers a kind of spiritual panacea with easy exercises or six or seven simple rules for your everyday life. This Hebrew prophet can seem daunting. He just seems so large, so big. He takes up so much space. He has so much to say. He is so difficult to understand. And it's going to take time for us to transpose ourselves from where we are to where the people there are with this one Little caveat that when we begin to study the book of Isaiah, we discover that the people he's talking to are people just like us, with our same hopes and fears and anxieties, perhaps provoked by different circumstances, but they're very much people like ourselves. And I want to say about this book of Isaiah that if you want to learn more about God in terms of who he is and of how to relate to him, if you want to find, uh, if you find the world increasingly chaotic. And if you see the church losing its identity, losing its religion, if your personal joy is being shaken by circumstances, if you're struggling over how to live out your faith in a pluralistic and even antagonistic world, and if you want to know how the covenant-making, promise-keeping, steadfastly loving God works, for the good of his people in the world. Then this is the place to park yourself for the next however long it's going to take until we discover all the riches that are composed in this book of Isaiah. I've called the book the gospel according to Isaiah for its theme is good news. That lies at the, that's the punchline of the book at the end of a catalog of judgment Good news is the first great proclamation of the book later on, as we'll see. Isaiah's own name means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh has worked salvation. These first 39 chapters lay out the holiness of God and God's sovereignty that he rules, and the brokenness of the world, including the hopelessness of his own people, apart from God's intervention. The second chapter, uh, section, chapters 40 to 54, reveal that God is going to rescue his people and he's going to renovate, renew creation through the sheer grace and through the weakness of one who is called the servant of the Lord. And in the final chapters, 55 through 66, we're going to discover that God is creating a new community, a new people, of Jews and Gentiles, from the death of the servant in chapter 53 to the end of history, chapter 66, those people will be called out of the world, called together, called to belong to Zion, the city of God, the strong city, and in the end they will share in God's future. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 1, the opening Message of that chapter, which is in verse 2, begins by saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And if you go to the very end of Isaiah, you find the same heavens and the same earth who've heard the word of God through Isaiah. They've heard that word. And at the end of the book, the whole of nature, the whole of the universe, is transformed. There is a new universe, renewed universe, by the power of what will be said in this amazing book. Well, What about Isaiah himself? Isaiah began his ministry really in the reign of Uzziah but most of his ministry was lived out in the reigns or during the reign of two kings Ahaz and Hezekiah. Isaiah himself is virtually invisible in the story he keeps himself well in the background only now and then letting us see something of his own story. And when he does, he does so in order that we might recognize his credibility and discover that, in fact, we need to listen to him, for the same reason the Jews listened to him, because whenever he predicted something, it came true. Whenever he prophesied something, it came true. And that was what established the credibility of a prophet in Israel in those days. But mostly he's content to take a backward step. And the reason for that is that he is simply a prophet. A prophet is one who is the mouthpiece of God, God's mouth. Uh, to think of the, the story of Moses and uh, Aaron, do you know that story where Moses is having his conversation with God? God comes to him, calls him, and says, Moses, I want you to go on to Egypt. I want you to stand before Pharaoh, and I want you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses kind of Shuffles around in his feet for a moment and he says to God, He says, Well, you know, that, <laughs> that's a great privilege, nervous laugh, uh, going before Pharaoh and, and speaking on your behalf. But don't, do you, don't you know that really I, I'm, I'm really, I, I really am not a public speaker? You know, I really could not, I didn't go to school and learn how to do that public speaking stuff. I really would rather not be the one who did, does the speaking. God says, Okay, I'll give you the word, you give the word to your. Brother Aaron and he'll speak. He'll be your mouth, You will be God to him. You give him the words, and he will be your mouth." What God is teaching us and teaching Moses is, so this is how a prophet works. God gives the word, and the prophet is merely the mouthpiece. So in the New Testament, by analogy, at least, the work of a minister is not to come up with something to say. The work of a minister is simply to be like the prophet, and that is to be God's mouth, God's human mouth, so that you hear God speaking to you, to you personally, to you as the community of God's people, the way he did through Isaiah the prophet. big difference being Isaiah got his word straight from God. Ministers today get their word from Isaiah or from any of the other books of our Scripture. Well, Isaiah, as I say, operated during the reigns of these two men, Ahaz. Ahaz was a bad man. Ahaz, we're told in 2 Kings and in Second Chronicles, walked in the ways of the other kings of Israel and even sacrificed his child in the fire. In other words, following the practice of the Canaanite religions roundabout, he engaged in child sacrifice. Hezekiah, on the other hand, was a good man. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, we're told. And he reigned for 29 years. And during the reigns of these two men, there was first of all a threat from Syria, which is in the news today. But Isaiah had to say to Ahaz, your problem is not Syria. You need to watch out for Assyria, further north and east. They're the real threat. Later on, Hezekiah's time, Hezekiah was concerned about issues that were going on in his day, and he he thought he would uh, have an alliance with an emerging power called Babylon. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, the king, and says to him, Listen, Hezekiah, you really need to be afraid of this emerging little power block called Babylon. They are the real threat to Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah lived in those days, and the focus of his ministry is there in verse 1 of his book, uh, the vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He's not interested anywhere else. That is the focal point of his gaze. He wants to tell you the story of how Judah and Jerusalem have deserved the wrath of God. How the judgment is going to fall upon Judah and Jerusalem how they will be spared the judgment of God when Assyria is the empire because God will only use Assyria to kind of give them a bit of a whipping in order to wake them up and make them think about how they're behaving. But when Babylon comes along, Judah and Jerusalem will virtually disappear. They will be engulfed. They will be destroyed. They will be leveled by the power of Babylon. it's to Judah and Jerusalem that exiles will return. And in Judah and Jerusalem, that God will do a great work. That will impact the world and will end in a transformed universe. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews are key to this purpose. Jerusalem is key. The events that will save the world will happen in Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. for about a century. People have been arguing whether there is one Isaiah or multiple authors of this book. Scholarship has moved in the last decade or so, perhaps longer, to looking at the book as a unit, just as a unit, even though the presuppositions are maybe that it is made from various sources and so forth. Nonetheless, the focus has been on it as a unit, And increasingly those who are treating it as a unit are noticing more and more links of word usage and language and grammar and ideas and so on and I'm assuming as I come to it this morning that this is one book that it was either written all of it written by Isaiah or it was uh, parts of it were edited out of Isaiah's own material and that all of it was planned and organized ahead of time by Isaiah and given to his disciples to put together perhaps after his death. That is parts of it. But but all of the material, all of the substantial material of this book, all of it comes from Isaiah. And I'm saying that for some reasons. Well, First of all, that because the Jewish rabbis, the New Testament writers, and above all, Jesus, assume Isaiah is the author. Second, and this is important, there is no instance in history or in archaeology where this book does not appear always as a unity, and in the references made to it. Up until a little while ago, uh, the earliest manuscript we had was the Hebrew text dated from the 10th century AD. And then in 1947, among the scrolls in caves in the Qumran, they discovered a complete manuscript of Isaiah from a hundred years before Jesus. And the amazing thing is that the text is substantially identical to the texts we had from the 10th century AD. Thirdly, because there are themes that are developed, the idea of uh, the Holy One of Israel, one of Isaiah's key words, key expressions relating to God, the importance of Judah and Jerusalem, the key figure of David as the model king. And then, fourthly, because the presupposition of those who did not want to believe it that Isaiah was the work of one man, the Isaiah who lived in the 700s, 790s, down to about the 680s BC, is because of their rejection of predictive prophecy. As one scholar puts it, there's a redefinition of the biblical prophet not as, quote, a clairvoyant of the future. That's loaded language, isn't it, to describe a prophet. Or, or again, another scholar in Princeton who, who says prophecy is, listen, quote, a redescription of of the public processes of history through which the purposes of Yahweh are given in human utterance. What that means is this that what the prophets do is they take events that have happened history and they recast it they put it in theological terms they reinterpret it they re-describe it to fit the purpose that has been revealed by Yahweh Well, I want to take seriously how the Bible describes the prophet. A prophet is a spokesman for God, whether God is talking about things that are on today or tomorrow. In fact, what guides the work of a prophet in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament is the idea of a covenant, that God has built this relationship with people, specifically the people of Israel. That's what the that's what the Ten Commandments the, 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 and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible are. They're the covenant documents. They, 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 are, they were drawn up, as it were, to indicate the history of the relationship between the great king and the, 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 the people of Israel. And in those covenant documents, there are promises. Promises of land. Promises of stability and a future. And there are conditions in those books. By the time we come to Isaiah's time, People of Israel to the north have abandoned God. People of Judah to the south are abandoning God, and God sends them His servants, the prophets, as covenant ambassadors, His gophers, sent to do what He wants, sent to speak on His behalf, sent to be like Aaron was to Moses, His mouth who spoke the words He gave him to speak. Covenant ambassadors, covenant enforcers. Because they were responsible to guard the theocracy. To remind the king that he was only ever second in charge. That he was only really a vice king, not the big king. The big king is God. And over and over again the prophets come and they remind the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, Listen, you're answerable to the great king. He's the one who has acted for you in the past. And if you want him to act for you in the present, you must trust him. Don't put your trust in foreign alliances with Egypt or with Babylon. They'll turn like snakes to bite you in the end. The only one you can really trust is the one who made a covenant with you. They're the covenant enforcers. Often they act as covenant prosecutors. Isaiah does that, especially in the opening chapters. He lays down and spells out the case of Yahweh versus Judah and Jerusalem. And their covenant ministers. Because they come behind the prosecution and they come behind the law enforcement. And they bring the good news of the gospel. They bring the good news of God who comes to act to rescue his people. Now, I said earlier, why is Isaiah taken seriously by the Jews? He's taken seriously by the Jews because Moses had laid down a stipulation that was absolutely key and vital as to whenever a prophet came along, how you could test whether or not a prophet was, in fact, the spokesman of God. That'd be some way of knowing. Why is it Micah, Isaiah's contemporaries, taken seriously? And these other prophets, why are they taken seriously? Here's what Moses said if you say in your heart, How may we know that the word that the Lord has not how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How can we be how can we recognise something that is not of God? Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come true. Or come to pass, then that is a word the Lord has not spoken. Isaiah was taken seriously by the Jews before they went into exile and during the period of their exile and coming out of their exile because he had spoken words that applied to what was going to happen next year to Amos or what was going to happen in 10 years time or 30 years time or a hundred years time they took him seriously when they saw those things come true exactly as he had spoken which is why they preserved his writings the Jews were diligent especially after the exile diligent in ensuring that the Word of God was preserved. They had seen that Word fulfilled. Their experience of exile meant they were not going to play around with Yahweh anymore. They seen what Yahweh could do with people who play around, play fast and loose with His Word. They took it seriously. This book would not be in the Hebrew canon. If they had not been convinced that Isaiah of Jerusalem had spoken ahead of time what the word of God was to the people of his day. But that's not all. Because God's whole apologetic for himself in the book of Isaiah is built on predictive prophecy. In that great set piece battle that Isaiah records in Isaiah 41. God is confronting the nations round about with their gods. And he's confronting his own people who have decided that they will cobble on to the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They'll cobble on worship to these other gods as well, just to be sure, to be sure, as the Irish would say, to be sure, to be sure, that you're covered. All the, all the angles are being covered. And the Lord God speaks to these nations. And he says to these nations. And to these Jews who were following these other gods as well. He says this. Set forth your case. Says the Lord. This is uh, Isaiah 41 verse 21. Set forth your case. Says the Lord. Bring your proofs. Your evidences. Says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. And tell us. What is to happen? You see, God is building his case for himself on the work he's been doing through his prophets. He's saying to these nations, haven't you been listening? I, through my servants, the prophets, have been telling you what is going to happen. Let them bring them. Tell us what is going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. That we may know their outcome, or God is saying to these foreigns, foreigners with their pagan gods, just get your gods to tell you what's happening right now. You know, uh, anything actually, anything. Just get them to say anything. That would be good. But the real test is get them to declare the things that are to come. The things that are to come. Let me just say this. The whole apologetic for God in the book of Isaiah is that the God of Israel is distinct from all the other gods because He speaks. He speaks to this moment and He speaks to moments that have yet to be and He reveals His will to His servants the prophets. He does not do anything Without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. and That's how we get to John chapter 12 that we read. There is Jesus. And what we have in John chapter 12 is the very last time a prophet speaks to Judah and Jerusalem. And this time it is the final prophet. God's last word. It is their Messiah. And John 12 records the end of the conversation that Isaiah begins in his ministry. Some Gentiles have been looking for Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus, they would said. And they were introduced to Jesus. And that is the clincher in Jesus' mind. He says to them, now is the hour, now is the time for the son of Adam, the son of man, to be glorified. And he quotes exactly out of Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13. To be glorified. The servant will be lifted up and glorified. What Isaiah had said was this the servant of the Lord will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That last expression, highly exalted, means to be glorified. He will be glorified. And he goes on from Isaiah 52 verse 13. He plunges into Isaiah chapter 53 as we have it. And he gives an illustration. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Isaiah 53 goes on to say the servant who will be glorified will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted will first be rejected and despised he will be put to death but out of the anguish of his soul he will see and be satisfied he will make many to be accounted righteous he will see fruit for his death Jesus echoes Isaiah's words when we're told now is my soul troubled. He's in anguish of soul. Isaiah said the Messiah's servant would be in anguish of soul. And then in the culmination of this conversation he underlines that now the time for judgment has come. This is the final judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. The high priest has already said one man must die for the people echoing the language you find in uh, Isaiah chapter 42 who will save jerusalem and judah who will save israel 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 plural israel singular will save israel plural the individual who is then identified as the servant who is to be lifted up from the earth. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That is all kinds of people from all over the place to myself. Now look at what he says. They still did not believe him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? They didn't believe. Therefore, they could not believe. God had sealed them into their unbelief. For again, Isaiah says, this time Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would them. And that was the end of the conversation. Jesus no longer addressed them. In fact, it says, he no longer spoke to them. And when you turn to uh, to John chapter 13, you find Jesus addressing that remnant within Israel that Isaiah had spoken about. The few who trusted, the few who believed, the few to whom the comfort of the gospel came and was believed in. And Jesus speaks to his own who were in the world and showed them the full extent of his love by taking on the badge of the servant that Isaiah had spoken of and pouring out water as Isaiah said the servant would pour out his life to death. In order to show them that he had come to his own. To redeem his own and to save his own. Do you know. There are those here today. For whom these words that you hear from my lips. Will be the last words you hear. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solemnity of gathering in a gathering like this is that God uses it sometimes to speak to your heart. And the big heart issue for you is, will today you harden that heart? Will you be like those people to whom the Lord Jesus was speaking on that final day when it was said, he spoke to them no longer? You may hear somebody say words again, but they will no longer speak to your heart. Today is a solemn day if you hear this, if it's, if it's affecting your mind and your heart and it's connecting with you that, that you need to be in a right relationship with God and you've been resisting Him for whatever reason it may be and you've been suppressing the knowledge that you need to be in a right relationship with God and you've been sitting on it, trying to forget about it, trying to push it away from you. I plead with you today while your ears still open, as it were, while your heart is still malleable and responsive, I plead with you. Think of it. Never to hear from God again. And in the language of Isaiah, to have your eyes finally blinded and your heart finally hardened Look to Jesus today. As I will say about Jesus, he will be lifted up as a signal to the nations. And nations will come to him. We're a bit of an international crowd here. Multi-ethnic. And that multi-ethnic crowd have come to believe in the Lord Jesus for themselves. And you may too today. Will you do that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that from a servant 800 years before Jesus, we find his writings bristling, full of promise and hope, as well as judgment. His words coming true, and a people. In exile and returning from exile to a devastated landscape, finding in his words comfort and hope because they knew it to be very word of God because it had come true in all of its details to that point. Little did they know that within 400 years, the darker and less clear areas of his prophecy would come true when the servant was lifted up on a cross and glorified on the throne of glory. We pray that you would help us today to grasp hold of him, he who is unutterably wonderful, he who is our heart's desire. In his strong name we pray.